Hello, everyone, and welcome back. My name is Courtney. I am here with my spouse, Royce, and today we have a special guest on the podcast. Uh, we're very excited to have this conversation. We can't wait to get into it. So we're just going to dive right in. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, hi, I'm Kate Wood. I'm and uh, I'm speaking with my very deep, sexy COVID voice. And oh no, <laughs> I am the research director of the ACE and Aero Collective in Australia, and I have written a very long, two hundred word study into ACE phobic discrimination, violence, and oppression. It's called "I Don't Know If This Counts," but we surveyed. 1,600 respondents from 57-ish countries, and this has taken me two years to write up the results of this survey. And about me, I'm just an Australian um, asexual person. I'm also on the aromantic spectrum. And the reason that I have gone into the hobby of researching asexphobic violence is because I am myself a survivor of corrective sexual assault. And um, I guess that's why the subject first started to interest me about four years ago, because there wasn't a lot of research into that subject. So I decided to start producing the research myself. And that is so commendable. And we are so excited to talk to you about that. Well, maybe excited is the wrong word, because clearly <laughs> we're, we're talking about oppression. We're talking about violence. So it's not a happy subject. But when you say that there isn't a lot of research out there, that really, really resonates with me because I am definitely a, a geek for the numbers, for the surveys. So I'm I am interested in really getting into the nitty gritty of your research here. And before we do dive in, because I I also am a survivor of sexual assault, and I know that there is still in certain pockets of the ACE community this stigma around that. And there's sort of a, well, can you really call yourself asexual or or maybe it was caused by this. And I know that that's something that uh, you and your personal work have spoken about a lot. So I'd just like to hear sort of in your words, what your sort of experience has been with that and what what you would like to put out to those people who might think those negative thoughts. Well, my my research has focused primarily on people who were sexually assaulted because they are asexual. And which is my experience, not the other way around, which is people who became asexual because they were sexually assaulted. But my opinion is that people who are asexual because of a sexual assault or because of any trauma are 100% valid. They are completely asexual. They belong in our community. They are a part of our community and they should be welcomed and included. Everybody who is asexual or Everybody who identifies as asexual, in my opinion, regardless of the reason why they identify, you know, whether it be because of a hormonal disorder or because of a medication or because they have been sexually assaulted, if they do not experience sexual attraction or if they experience little to no sexual attraction, that's the only part. That's the definition. There's nothing in the definition that says because of this or because of that or unless it's because of this. So they're part of the community, in my opinion, and should be 
welcomed into the community and their experience should be considered. Their experience should be considered valuable and just part of the, you know, rich experience of our whole community. Here, here, absolutely. And I've, I've, I've also noticed that there seems to be sort of a strong overlap in the way those types of people who would say, well, your asexuality isn't valid. It always kind of comes back to like, oh, well, if it can be cured, if it can be fixed. And it gets into such muddy waters because I, I hear sort of the same rhetoric on the side of whether it was a trauma or sexual assault and also on the disability side. Well, are you asexual because of a disability? And I, I fully agree with you. It does not matter if someone is ace and identifies as ace, they are ace. If it can be cure, cured or changed or altered, that doesn't matter because sexuality is fluid anyway. And some people who have been asexual in the past become not asexual through who knows what reason. So I don't think that that washes as an argument at all. I think people's sexuality can and does change. So if the reason that it does change is trauma or medication or hormonal reasons or a disability, then that's the reason. Um, and it doesn't mean that they they weren't asexual at the time that they were. And it doesn't mean that they aren't the new sexuality that they are afterwards. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest uh, disservices that the um, born this way narrative has <laughs> given to truly the entirety of the queer community. But I think the ace and arrow communities in particular are still in such a weird place where people are trying to find, you know, what's the reason? What's the cure? This isn't real. This is wrong. It should be fixed. Which also gets into matters of conversion therapy, which we are definitely going to cover as we get into your study here. So as we start to move forward, I do want to just sort of ask you a little bit about your approach and your process, because you would, correct me if I'm wrong, not consider yourself a traditional academic uh, yeah, that's right. So I'm actually studying my master's at the moment, but uh, not in a subject that's anywhere even close to this. So I'm not an academic, and uh, that it's been it's been pointed out to me before that I'm not an academic, and therefore um, the work that I do is is less valuable. It doesn't have any academic rigor. But our report has been put out by a legitimate nonprofit organization. And that kind of research is put out all the time. Just because you haven't heard of our nonprofit doesn't mean that the work we put out isn't valid. But also I found that, okay, if I'm not an academic, that's giving me a little bit more freedom. So I was able to write the report in a way that although it is 200 pages long, does make it a little bit more accessible for people to read. I didn't have to, I didn't have to write in any kind of academic language, which I always find difficult to read with my neurological injury. So yeah, I just thought like, if I'm not an academic and you're going to point out how I'm not, gonna, not an academic all the time, then I'm not going to write like one. And I think that that means it makes it easier for the people who this report is about to actually read about themselves. There are a lot of accessibility issues in all kinds of both academic and legal writing. I, I wish um, methods of writing were taught more heavily in academic circles that would actually make them more accessible to the, the widespread public. Yeah, and I have always found that it's just an unnecessary amount of it has to be done this way because this is the way it's always been done. And so I felt, well, I'm not going to do it that way. You know, anyone who doesn't respect me because I'm not an academic uh, is never going to. So why not just write the way I write? Oh, absolutely. And there is definitely something to be said as well for 
in community activism and research and study and because you you are a member of the ace community you have your own unique sets of lived experiences that no doubt helped shape the way you approached things which i think is very valuable and i do wish there was more i guess sort of collaboration between traditional academics and the communities that they are actually studying because it it seems to me like every time there is a non-ace academic who puts something out. I'm always of two minds because I'm very grateful that they are, well, I'm grateful when they approach it respectfully and when they are publishing because we do need to have these things, you know, in all areas of the world, even in academia. But sometimes something's presented as like, I, I found this miraculous, surprising thing in my research and Me as an ace, who most of my friends are ace, and I've interacted with hundreds of aces over the years, it's like, that was kind of just common knowledge to me, because that's just, that's just my friends, that's just my community. So, yeah. So I think it's great that you are an ace and that you are putting in the time to do the proper research here. And you're right, this is much more accessible to read than the average academic paper. Which I believe, are we going to be able to uh, share this out to our listeners and put it in our show notes and everything for everyone to read along with us if they'd like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Then we will have all of that in the regular places for those of you listening. Now, I suppose here's my first question. Here's what I really, really want to know. Sort of a two-part question, if you will, because I'm sure that as an ace who is a survivor of sexual trauma, I'm sure... When you go in to study these sort of things, you do expect to see some things that maybe the average person who's ignorant of ACE issues maybe wouldn't. So I would like to know what you found most surprising in this process that you were maybe not expecting that you found. And then as a secondary question, I'd like to ask, what do you think would be most surprising to someone who's completely ignorant of the ACE community and ACE issues? Um, What I found surprising was when I got to look at the numbers for intimate partner violence, that was really hard to get a meaningful and useful number out of, which I explained why in the report. It's hard to compare our numbers to the general community because so many asexual people don't enter into relationships. So yeah, it's hard to make a comparison there. But I was surprised by how many asexual people experience intimate partner violence. Uh, And I was also surprised to find a very clear pattern in how intimate partner violence is experienced by asexual people. And what I think would be most surprising to someone else, I would probably say the same thing again. And I say that because I attended the human rights conference for World Pride recently, and I read out some of my numbers. So I read out some of the figures for the most important things I had, and it was extremely gratifying to get an audible gasp from the audience. And when I read out that number for the percentage of ACE people who had experienced intimate partner violence, I heard somebody audibly say, oh my God. So I would say that's probably what someone would find most surprising. But they're surprised by the the high number of sexual violence figures as well. Well, then let's let's dig into that a little bit first. What what are some of those sort of shocking figures and the pattern that you saw as as it emerged? 
So with intimate partner violence, uh, I had to come up with a way of looking at the numbers that was what I felt was skeptic proof is what I called it because I couldn't name it after a specific person. So using those numbers, which is people who I feel like nobody could deny that this was genuine intimate partner violence. Because some people, they only ticked the boxes for things like the ace phobic intimate partner violence, which in my opinion does count, but I would say there are people who would say it, it does not count. So I didn't use those in the figures. I only use the people that no one would deny it. Um, and for that, I would say the figure that we will use is that roughly 39% of those respondents who have ever been in a relationship have experienced intimate partner violence. And how I got to that figure, I explain in the report. So that's that's high and that is deeply, deeply upsetting. And in the majority of cases there, there it is, 87.87% partner was allosexual mm -hmm. with a further almost 3%. It's happened to the person more than once. And in, in at least one of the cases, the partner was allosexual. So we're looking at 90% of the time, this is an allosexual partner being abusive towards a asexual partner. That is a startling figure. That is disgusting. Statistically, I guess we would expect most of the time the partner to be non-asexual. But yeah, I'm just shocked by, by how frequent that is. And what else we're finding is that sexual violence is very, very high in so people who are experiencing intimate partner violence, the level of sexual violence is very high. I don't know what is the normal level, but I understand from experts that it is very high. 87.64% of respondents had experienced some form of sexual violence from the partner, which is, that. I mean, that's a lot, including, so we asked, we asked if they'd experienced verbal pressure from their partner if they'd experienced violent coercion, if they'd experienced physical force, and 22% had experienced physical force from an intimate partner. But what we also asked was, I cannot say exactly in what way I was pressured or forced, but I feel as if my partner did sexually assault me. And we added that because of personal experiences of people who were writing the survey questions. And we just felt like that's an experience that we know some people have had, so we should add it. Mm -hmm. And we got a response of 30% of respondents who had been an intimate partner, 30% of respondents who had been in a violent relationship said yes to that question. So they, they had that feeling, but they could not describe, which I find very upsetting, but also very interesting. So we're seeing a lot of sexual violence in these relationships. So we were asking about physical violence, sexual violence, coercive control behaviors, and coercive control is doing things like controlling the finances of your partner by taking away their money or controlling their access to money things like controlling what a person can wear, who they can talk to, what they can eat, isolating them from their family, that kind of behavior. And the fourth thing we asked about was asphobic specific behaviors, doing things like blaming the asexuality for other problems in the relationship, like commonly cheating is because of the asexuality, that kind of thing. And what another thing that I found was that it's very common for the asphobic behaviors to happen, but it's not that common for the asphobic behaviors to be the primary form of abuse. So based on not just the quantitative data, but also on all of the stories that people sent, the first person accounts, it seems to me that 
very frequently the partner is abusive. And the thing about abusive people is that they will use whatever they have available as a form of abuse. And so if that person happens to be asexual, then they use the asexuality. So yeah, if, if asexuality is there, that's what the abuser will use. And that is very common. So one reason why the numbers could be so high is because asexual people already have experienced a lot of trauma. And we know that the rate of intimate partner violence is very high for bisexual people. And they have also experienced previously, they have high rates of other kinds of trauma. And the thing about abusive people is that they are very good at finding somebody who is already vulnerable. So a reason that the numbers could be so high is because there is already trauma there. There is already vulnerability there. And an abusive person has a way of sensing that and finding, I don't want to say finding a victim, but that's sort of what they do. They find someone who is vulnerable to being abused and using that against them. So I think one of the reasons why this could be so high is the same reason it can be quite so high in the bisexual community. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense as well. And in speaking of some of the, for example, like corrective rape, things of that nature, normally the, I guess, sort of the mainstream dialogue about this kind of violence in the queer community is normally like, oh, well, you know, lesbians will experience corrective rape or bi people will will be more prone to abuse. But very rarely do I actually see people discuss this in an ACE context. And I think you're right that the average person would be surprised at these figures. It was even really not too long ago, there was quite a large video circulating that several of our listeners sent us. Uh, we'd, we'd watched it already anyway, that was claiming that ACEs don't face corrective rape and that they don't face conversion therapy and just said outright that they don't experience these things. And I was like, what ACEs have you been speaking to? Because I personally know people and I personally have, you know, been a victim of some of these things as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I would strongly disagree. And I had many accounts, many of the personal accounts that were sent in, they straight up said that their partner had used corrective rape against them. So, I mean, I think if the person is saying, well, my partner said that they would fix me, that they would cure me, I mean, what are we calling that? How can that be any called anything else? They were there. They heard what the perpetrator said. That's corrective. One thing I find quite concerning about this as well is the number of young, especially young men, who appear to not be aware that they have the right to say no. So women were more likely to be aware that what they had experienced was rape, but men did not. They just knew that they didn't want what had happened, but they were less likely to actually know the word for it. Yeah, they just, I don't know what sex ed is teaching kids. It's, it's bad. I know that they're not teaching them a lot, but yeah, I'm concerned by the number of young men who don't appear to be aware that they have the, the right to say no to their girlfriend. And it was usually a girlfriend in the stories. Yeah, that's really, really good and, and important to point out as well, because I have in in sort of trying to open a dialogue with these folks who say, you know, aces don't face these things, you know, aces don't face corrective rape, they don't face conversion therapy. In trying to sort of challenge that, the sort of talking point that I find most people will devolve to is like, oh, well, 
you know, if you experienced it, it's because you're a woman. It's not because you're asexual. Like it's, it's just, you know, good old fashioned, you know, patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. And so they'll try to sort of divert away from the ace identity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But in fact, not for intimate partner violence, but certainly for sexual violence, our survey actually had men more likely to have experienced it than women. Really? Yeah. So that is that was a very unexpected result. Uh, non-binary people just like massively higher. But oh, of course, we went non-binary men, women. Yeah. So that was an unexpected result. And for intimate partner violence, the women were affected more than men, but the the difference was not as significant as it is in the general population, nowhere near. Wow. I, I, I just don't even have any words for that. That's, that's something that more people need to know about. <laughs> and, and that's why I'm so glad that we have you on and that we're going to be able to help hopefully get more eyes on your findings here because it's, it's so troubling, but it's also very surprising. And it seems to me that this is could be a direct counter to all those arguments that we consistently hear time and time again. Yeah, yeah. That does sort of make me wonder, did you find it all? Because I, I believe was that figure about 30% didn't really have words for it, but something felt wrong. Was there at all a, a gender difference in the response to that that you found? There probably was, but I would have to look up what it was. I didn't report it in the report. Sure. But I would have the data for it, yeah. Because, yeah, it seems to me, and this is pure speculation, of course, but it would seem that if there was a much higher percentage of men who weren't aware of their ability to say no in those situations, perhaps there was also a lack of sort of access to the vocabulary to describe what those feelings were after said event. Yeah, I would think so, yes. Oh, that's one more thing that I think is important to talk about in intimate partner violence. Something that was not asked about, but I think is it was quite common in the in the qualitative responses that we got is the phenomenon where the abusive partner would become unpleasant to live with if the asexual partner wouldn't have sex with them. So they would just be they wouldn't do anything specifically abusive. They would just be um, standoffish. What, what one person you know describing it as a childlike strop, not talking to their partner, being just generally unpleasant and difficult to deal with. So until the asexual partner initiated sex, so the asexual person begins to feel like they're having to initiate their own rape. Essentially, they don't want to do it. They are very uncomfortable with it. They are repulsed by sex, but they can't live with their partner's behavior anymore. So they have to initiate sex. And we had this story told time and time and time again of partners doing this. That sounds like instead of overtly aggressive or overtly violent behavior, it's just passive aggressive behavior towards the same end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the people who are experiencing this, and I guess they're ticking that box. Um, you know, I don't, I felt like I was coerced, but I, I don't know how to describe it. And it, it really is it's a real kind of mind fuck because you didn't want to have sex and you really felt like you were forced to, but like, how, I mean, you can't report that, can you? You can't say that your partner assaulted you if you initiated the sex but you absolutely didn't want to have sex so i mean what what are we calling this but it's definitely something that you know is not an isolated incident because i received i'd say i'd say at least a dozen stories where this was the case wow yeah 
And that's what, what's so insidious about that is that there very much is, um, like Royce, you said, passive aggressive. There's definitely a change in the behavior. There is a level of manipulation that is at play here on an individual level. But from how I see it, it's sort of an individual manipulation that's almost reinforced by broader society because just the the constant ace erasure, the ace phobia, the sort of things that society just always either passively or actively tells us as aces is that this is something you should want. This is something you should do. This is something all, you know, quote, normal people do. So you're sort of just getting it at a, a larger scale and on a smaller intimate scale. And I... <laughs> I, I I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're thinking in your head. Well, this is kind of your fault because you should be having sex. You know, they they and they have they have the right to be upset because you're not. You know, and you could be getting this from friends, from your parents, from from whoever. You know, when you when you talk about the problem. So yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really complicated situation to be in that one and really hard. Yeah. But but in my opinion, you know, that's I feel that if that has happened to you, then you have absolutely experienced a form of sexual assault, even if you can't find the right words to describe it. And even if, you know, you could never report it to anybody as as an assault. To my mind, that feels like one. And I believe you and I think that that's valid. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's still it's definitely coercion, but it's so abstract that it kind of gives the person involved this sort of illusion of consent because they made the choice but they were still pressured into the choice yeah and there's a real plausible deniability for the perpetrator there but yeah i i think it counts and i believe i believe anybody who's experienced this and i i think that you have the right to say that you have been assaulted you have been coerced now did your study were you able to identify or were you even looking for, I suppose, people who had maybe experienced multiple instances of sexual violence or even different types of sexual violence across the span of their life? Because one thing that has been odd just sort of in my personal experience, and this is going to be a long enough episode, I won't get into details now, but I have experienced multiple different, completely separate, seemingly isolated instances of sexual violence. And it got to a point where I didn't literally think this, but it was like, <laughs> is it me? Like, what is it? This seems abnormal. And I'm wondering if there are other aces out there who have a similar experience. Yeah, well, I, I did a case study um, where I picked one person at random from the entire list and looked at them over the entire course of all of the questions. And I can easily do this for other people, and I, I think that I will. But it enabled me to just look at the whole of somebody's life and all of the things they'd experienced. And you can kind of see when you do that, when you get a whole life experience, you can kind of see how things I guess, relate to each other and how over time, maybe they don't necessarily all, you know, there's not necessarily a cause and effect there, but you can see how a person's different experiences kind of, kind of connect to each other over the course of an entire life. So this person, for example, when they were very young, they said that they, uh, they went to see a doctor and yeah, when they're in their late teens, they went to a doctor 
who I won't read this aloud because it's very shocking, but they went to see a doctor who did something that was one of the one of the worst healthcare stories, possibly the worst healthcare story that I received in the entire survey. So they went to see a doctor and went through a horrific experience. And then, you know, that's that's when they were very young. But that experience obviously is, you know, this is when they're young and trying to have sex and trying to understand who they are. But that horrific experience, that's made them even more sex repulsed, you know. So when they then get into relationships, they're not willing to have sex. So that's affecting what's happening with their relationship. And it's also this incident with the doctor that's going to affect their self-esteem. That's that's a traumatic experience and abusers do sort of latch on to people who've had traumatic experience. So, you know, they've ended up in an abusive relationship and people who are, who have been in one abusive relationship are more likely to end up in a second abusive relationship. So that that's happened here as well. So you can kind of see over the course of their life, all of the things that have, and that have happened to them and how, you know, how it's gone from, from one thing to another. You can look at the microaggressions they've experienced. So, you know, they've, I know, I noticed straight away when I was looking at their microaggressions, they were one of the only people I'd seen who had experienced, uh, what was it? Being told that they are asexual because they are unattractive or similar, which was a very common one, but they were told that by a romantic or sexual partner. And that's straight away, like my alarm just lit up and I was like, okay, they've been in an abusive relationship because most people that don't take romantic or sexual partner for that column. So yeah, you can kind of see looking at them how one thing comes to another. And I would like to do maybe a follow-up that does quite a few of these so we can look at them for more than one person and see how how these things happen. Yeah, I think that would be incredibly fascinating. And I definitely do want to talk about doctors as well, because you have an entire section here on on healthcare stories and since we did sort of start talking in the direction of conversion therapy, I, I first want to ask by, or I want to start by asking what your opinion or for the purposes of the survey, what you consider to be conversion therapy. Because there are some people who have a very, very narrow view and they think it's just the Christian camps <laughs> that you get sent to and that's it. It's nothing else. I personally think it's a lot wider than that. And some people will even say that some people will even consider corrective sexual assault to be a form of conversion therapy. So for your purposes and the purposes of this study, what's sort of your scope with that? Well, I use the language conversion practices because they're in no way therapeutic and I refuse to say that they are. I like that. That's fair. <laughs> I might adopt that. <laughs> That's the language that we use in Australia. That, so the latest laws that, that have been enacted in certain states have been laws against conversion practices. So I studied conversion practices in two different sections, in, in healthcare, but also in religious discrimination. And one of the reasons I, I looked at it in, in religious discrimination was because I've often heard activists stating the uh, UK's national LGBT survey, which found that asexual people with sexual orientation group with the highest rate of being offered conversion therapy, which was almost double the rate the bisexual people were. And I, I found that to be an interesting statistic, but I was a bit concerned about citing it all the time because such a high number of asexual people are trans or gender diverse. And I thought, well, 
uh, this is just this survey doesn't indicate why they were offered conversion therapy. Is it because they were asexual or was it something to do with their gender identity? So I decided that I would ask the question. If you were referred to some kind of conversion practice, what was the reason for that? I decided to ask. But uh, what I found was that 64 point, about 65 and a half percent were for asexuality or asexuality plus another thing. So yeah, I was surprised actually to find that it was higher than I than I thought it would be. They were referred because they were asexual specifically. 32% were referred just because of their asexuality, but many of them did not. They got out of it. They didn't have to go. They weren't sent. So that was good. I only got one respondent who submitted a story about actually being sent to a conversion camp, and they were 12. Oh, oh that's sickening. That is, I, I'm glad that you thought to specify in the question because even asking it and still separating it out, we've gotten a larger, more well-rounded, clear picture of it, but we also still know that those numbers are very high due to the asexuality. Yeah, yeah. So the question I asked was, if you had experienced some kind of conversion practice, what was the perceived problem? So yes, that that was that was a lot to find that it was the it was asexuality. And I guess that's surprising when you look at it in isolation, but when then when you've actually read all the rest of the section on religious discrimination, it becomes not surprising at all because, you know, I would have thought, I mean, Australia is a very secular country. I have very little exposure to Christianity. Uh, I don't know that much about it. So I would have thought, oh, you know, not having sex before marriage, not being interested in sex, you know, asexuality, it wouldn't really bother, you know, Christianity. And uh, boy, am I wrong. <laughs> That That's a common belief, though. Even people who do grow up in closer proximity to heavy, heavily Christian areas still have that misconception. So you are very much not alone in that. Yeah. And I mean, Christianity isn't the only religion that came up, but I think about 30% of respondents were American and the survey was only circulated in English. So, you know, it's going to skew towards Christianity and that's not surprising. Uh, what was surprising is the second highest second most common religion that was mentioned, which was pagan and Wiccan experiences. Awful lot of, I mean, it wasn't a lot, but it was more than I would expect of pagan and Wiccan people. And what's happening there is that because a lot of pagan and Wiccan, a lot of that's a response directly against the Christian church. So a lot of it's really embracing sexuality and being highly sex positive and using sexuality within practice. There was a real, some people just expressed a feeling of discomfort, you know, like they didn't feel welcome because they weren't using their sexuality, but others described what was outright inappropriate um, in terms of their sexuality within pagan and Wiccanism. But, Wiccanism? I don't know. Is that the word? In, within pagan and Wiccan practice. So I've had three responses of men in their, I don't know, 30s, 40s, certainly much older, who wanted to help minor women, minor girls, you know, um, find their sexual energy. And then, you know, I'm getting to those and I'm like, I really wish this wasn't an anonymous survey because I feel like I should report this to someone. Yeah, that's uh, questionable. That's really uncomfortable. But it was Christianity that came up the most. 61% of respondents said that they had 
felt that they'd experienced some kind of discrimination, 61% of them, it was some form of Christianity. And when you look through the different experiences people had had, it was very eye-opening for me in terms of what people experienced in all religions, and including the, I think, two people who said that they'd experienced it within the atheist community, which I included. It's not technically a religion, but I felt like it was close enough to include their data as well. But interestingly, only about 50% said that their exp- this experience was a factor in them choosing to leave or convert. So not, not all of them chose to leave or convert, but those that did, only half of them, this feeling of discrimination was, was a reason why they did. So it's a bit odd, actually. I don't quite understand why that is. I guess one question... I, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but when you say they they left or converted, did they leave the organization, the church, and keep the religion or leave the religion altogether? Because we do know some people who have or have talked to some people who have left organized religion but still practice their religion. Like they found their, their own way to practice it individually in a way that made sense to them. I asked both. Um, So 39% said that they still have faith, but they practice their faith outside the community or organized religion. Nearly 10% said that they have left this specific religious community and have found acceptance in a different community within the same faith. 13.8% have converted to another religion or faith and 22, 23% say that they no longer believe at all. So there's all sorts of different responses kind of covered by it. But only 50% said that their specific feeling of being discriminated against was the reason for them making that decision. But I mean, I also think that you may not necessarily fully know the reasons for your doing something. You know, you make a decision, but you, you don't always know the reason. You know, a lot of these people also were gender diverse. So they may have felt discriminated against for being asexual and being gender diverse. And it was the gender diversity that made them leave. You know, maybe they could they felt they could handle the asexual stuff, but not the gender diversity, which would make sense. And and you know, it's sort of a factor then, but it's not really the main factor they were thinking of. So I mean, it, yeah, we just don't. I just don't have that kind of data. So that makes sense. And were there many sort of actually detailed examples about what some of these conversion practices actually look like? You mentioned one twelve-year-old who actually got sent to a camp, which sounds like at least close in line to what the average person thinks about when they think of conversion therapy camp. But what other sort of types were there? That is the only person that wrote about conversion. So there are lots of things that you might consider conversion therapy in some different ways. So looking at them, so this is as a percentage of the group that said they had experienced some form of discrimination, not the whole survey. So 2% of them said they've been offered sex by a religious leader to fix or cure them. 4.73% had been subjected to an intervention and the same number had been sexually assaulted in order to fix or cure them. You can't see me making my little finger quotes, but like fix or cure. (laughs) Yeah. Fix. Uh, 13.82% had been told or made to pray for a cure. 20% had had the community pray for their sexuality to change. So I'd say those are the the, the main ones in that section that where we asked about conversion therapy. And then when then we also asked about then there was a section where we specifically asked about conversion therapy. 
sorry, conversion practices, I should say. I do really like that. And I didn't realize that that was the phrase used in Australia and likely other places because we we always hear conversion therapy, conversion therapy and conversion therapy camps. But I like conversion practices because in the US, when we do have all of these very religious right-wing Christian lobbyists who are trying to lobby in favor of keeping conversion therapy, that's the word they weaponize. They always say like, oh, this isn't, you know, abusive. This isn't yada yada. This is just, this is therapy and we're pro-therapy. Therapy is supposed to be a good thing. What if this person can live their best life after they go through this therapy? That's not a bad thing. So I like not using that word. And I especially like conversion practices for what it covers in asexuality because we do have such a high number of medical interventions, you know, trying to cure us hormonally. So I think that is is good. Unfortunately, we had recently introduced laws in Victoria, which is a state here, and the laws do cover asexual and aromantic people, thanks to the excellent work of my colleague. But they do leave an exception for if it is accepted medical practice, which I think is a big deliberate attempt to exclude the intersex community. Sure. I think that's the reason for saying that. But it, I think that also does take in asexual people because there's a lot of accepted medical practice. Of course. Uh, so, yeah, the section in healthcare kind of covers all sorts of things that could be conversion, considered conversion. And I'm not sure that I asked anything specifically about it, but we did ask about things like hypersexual desire disorder. Mm -hmm. So one thing we found that hypersexual desire disorder is no longer in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. We're on version five now, and I think it was in version four. Now we have two different diagnoses, one for men and one for women. But and I cannot remember. I can never remember what they what they're called. I think the men one is is still the same, and the and the woman one is something different. But we asked about if you know if people had been diagnosed with these, and then we asked if they had been diagnosed with these despite it not being distressed by their lack of libido, because in the diagnostic and statistic manual, which is what all psychiatrists, psychologists, etc., are supposed to go by this manual. You know, it tells what the official psychiatric conditions are, basically, is what this book is. And it says that for HSDD or whatever its new versions are, that you shouldn't be diagnosing it if the patient self-identifies as asexual. And the two factors that mean you should be diagnosing it is, one, the patient has a persistent lack of uh, libido. I don't know if does it use the word libido. I'm not sure, but a patient has an ongoing lack of libido. And the second criteria is that this must be causing them distress. We asked the question, have you been diagnosed? And we also asked the question, were you diagnosed despite not experiencing distress? Yes. So seven of the 11 people who had been diagnosed with it were diagnosed despite the fact that their lack of libido wasn't causing them any distress. So, I mean, that's not a high number. That's not a big sample size. But I very much doubt that these people have the same doctor. So seven out of 11 doctors uh, are completely ignoring the second, the second criteria that they need for diagnosis. And they may be ignoring the third. We didn't actually ask if they were diagnosing despite the person identifying as asexual, but they could be doing that as well. We don't know. Yeah, I've always had an issue with that language because, first of all, it is 
very easy for a doctor to, you know, assign sort of a an issue where there isn't one, <laughs> despite how the, how the client identifies or the patient. So hypo is, is insufficient, is H-Y-P-O lower than normal. So hyposexual, not enough sexual desire disorder. What is the right amount of sexual desire? And how does the doctor get inside a patient's internal feelings to determine whether or not they are not feeling the correct amount of sexual desire? Right. And if if someone does, for example, have have distress, is it because they do not have the quote appropriate amount of desire or is it because society <laughs> tells them it's wrong, you know? Or because of the results of this survey is and what I've seen come up in the intimate partner stuff and in the healthcare section here, is it because their partner wants them to have more sexual desire? And when I speak to doctors, medical students, a few times now, the medical students associations in Australia have really wanted to talk to us. They feel they're not learning enough about asexuality and they, you know, they're really keen to learn more, which I think is amazing. And also I've spoken to, to doctors themselves a few times and I say to them, like, really look at the whole holistic thing here. What's happening here is, is the husband out in the waiting room? If this person's come to you saying they don't have enough libido or they don't have, they don't have sexual attraction. I mean, it says don't diagnose if the person self-identifies as asexual. Have they heard of the term? Say to them, oh, do you know what asexuality is? Have you considered that this might be you? You know, like try and do more than just go straight to the diagnosis. Yeah, it always seemed more like, oh, unless they identify as asexual, that felt more like, let's just throw that in to appease the asexual so they don't keep getting mad at us for saying this. Like, oh, look, we included you. Yeah, and that's ridiculous to say unless they self-identify as something that they may not have heard of. Right. Because, yeah, HSDD is the one that a lot of people do discuss, and it did get split. And... It is odd. I, I think you are right that they did keep it the same hypoactive sexual desire disorder for males. It's like male hypoactive sexual desire disorder now. And then they have a second one for female, but they changed the word of that and it's like sexual arousal and interest or something like that. And it's like, it's very odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for men, it's it's definitely active. For men, it is active, hypoactive. And for women, it's hypo... Yeah, it's 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 a much more passive word, whatever the word is. Yeah, it's very gendered. The man is expected to have an active, and the woman is expected to have a a more of a passive sexual desire. Yeah, and I don't know what non-binary people are supposed to be diagnosed with. Yeah, there's there are issues. <laughs> there are issues. Yeah. So the healthcare section is the longest section in the report because we asked, frankly, we asked too many questions. Um, it was very confusing. It didn't work well on mobile and we should never do this again. Noted. <laughs> but we did glean a lot of information from it. And just the stories we got about doctors, I mean, those alone were very useful. We got positive, negative and kind of neutral stories. So I was able to kind of score different um, medical professionals on, you know, how many good, bad and um, neutral stories they each got, you know, to try and find who is the worst kind of medical professional. But also, to be fair, you know, we had just done five sections in which people were asked to only tell us negative things. 
And then we gave them this section where they could tell us also positive things. So they were kind of primed to say only negative stories. But yeah, we did also get examples of like good positive care that people had had. So it does give me like, here are some some do's to add along with the don'ts when I do stuff with um, medical professionals. So so that's good. But uh, one thing that was really concerning was the responses about relationship counsellors and sex therapists specifically. That was that was really concerning. We've got relationship counsellors, sex therapists telling patients to force themselves to have sex. Ugh. Ugh. So, you know, you've you've got a sex therapist sitting down with a patient and saying, like, if you don't want to have sex, you just have to force yourself. And we've got relationship counsellors sitting down with a couple and saying to them, you know, if she's not into it, you know, you just have to force it. Like, what is that? No, no. See, that that's so upsetting because I personally have a friend who is actually a sex coach and she is very, very mindful of asexuality. And I've had many conversations with her and she tries very hard to go out of her way to use inclusive language and not default to the same things that I hear a lot of sort of sex therapists say where like, oh, sex is healthy and everyone should have sex and everyone should have more sex. And so I'm very grateful for her, but I'm, I guess, disappointed, but not surprised that there are others in the field who are much less mindful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's really concerning. Were there any instances that stood out to you of just like psychologists who maybe even didn't necessarily diagnose something out of the DSM, but still very much encouraged people to explore sexual activity they weren't interested in, in a therapy kind of setting? Oh, commonly, commonly. I don't know of any specifically off the top of my head, but yeah, they, psychologists and therapists, they were the most common stories I got were from psychologists were about psychologists and therapists. Because these are the two professions really that patients are disclosing to the most. If they're going to disclose their asexuality, it's going to be to a psychologist or a therapist because that's the time when it's most relevant. And they come out okay, <laughs> but not great. Definitely more negative stories than positive stories. But again, like I said, people are primed to tell a negative story. But yeah, it's it's often a kind of... They just don't believe that it's a real thing, that it exists. The psychologist, there's either that or the psychologist or therapist is convinced that the asexuality is caused by trauma. So they they want to go in and they want to get in there and treat the sexual trauma or, you know, they start saying, suggesting that there's repressed child sexual abuse there that the patient doesn't know about. And I've experienced that myself personally when I revealed I was asexual the psychologist started asking some like really pointed questions about my father, which I was like, whoa, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a leap. Yeah, that I got, I could see where she was going with it. And I got really, really uncomfortable. And I changed, I just just like, well, I won't see her again. Yeah. So yeah, that that's the more common. It's, it's, they're trying to treat the asexuality and not the thing that the patient actually wants to be treated, which is a real problem. And that was probably the most common thing that happened with therapists and psychologists, but also with other kinds of medical professionals, gynecologists, just doctor, who people didn't specify, endocrinologists, although endocrinologists actually didn't come out too bad. Oh, good for them. <laughs> yeah, they had too good, too bad, too neutral. All right. 
so that puts them in equal first place, having three even across the board. That's as good as you can get, having an equal number of good, bad, and a neutral. Props to the endocrinologists of the world. And dermatologists, yeah. And dermatologists. <laughs> Dermatology comes up surprisingly often because there are some medications, acne medications, where you can't take them if you might be pregnant. Yeah, that makes sense now that you say that. I had one example of the person saying that the dermatologist insisted that they might be pregnant, you know, and they must take a pregnancy test. And one saying that, you know, she said, well, I can't possibly be pregnant because I'm asexual. And the dermatologist was like, okay, great. We don't need to take the pregnancy test. Awesome. <laughs> More doctors need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's what I say when I, when I talk to doctors, I say, look, some asexual people do have sex. And if they do, they're not going to lie to you. And I know that patients sometimes lie. And I know that doctors worried about patients lying and they're, you know, determined to figure find that out. But an asexual person is going to be honest with you. If you tell them, you know, you can't take this medication if you might be pregnant, are you having sex? They're going to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, no one's going to say to you, oh, I'm not having sex. I'm asexual to get out of taking a pregnancy test. They're just not going <laughs> to. It's just not being believed by healthcare providers that can be really... You know, it, it can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating because it's like, I'm trusting you to provide me health care and you're treating me like I am lying to you about everything. There needs to be some sort of like mutual level of trust here. And if you're already starting from a point of not believing and not listening to them, then you're, you're going to have issues. Probably the worst consequence that we had was a woman who miscarried. It's not 100% clear, but it suggests that her baby might have been saved if they'd believed her on when the conception date was. Mm. But they, the doctor didn't. He said, you know, it's just smaller than, than we, it's just younger than we thought, you know, it's just small. And so because he didn't take her seriously and didn't believe her when the, when the conception date was, and it couldn't possibly be any other date. And so she miscarried. Oh, that's terrible. So that was, that was pretty, pretty upsetting that one. I think that was one of the stories where I had to like get up and go for a walk. Yeah, that was awful. That's terrible. You were talking, you know, very real consequences for just not believing a person, a sexual person. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think too, too often in healthcare, and this is, this is on the psychology side of things with psychologists and therapists giving, you know, what's probably very harmful <laughs> advice at best not helpful, but I think often they can give very harmful advice. But then you you do have the actual, when medications are involved, potential pregnancies, other things to that effect, I guess. I guess the, the physical and the mental perhaps is where I'm getting at. But I think on both sides of the medical profession, there is just a culture of othering asexuality. And even if they don't use or acknowledge the word asexual, even going back to HSDD, like what, what is normal? What is hypoactive? There's, there's this idea that everyone has that everyone is and should be sexual. And that is, to me, inherently acephobic, whether or not the patient is out as ace, because it will disproportionately harm those folks. For me, for example, and I, I've mentioned this on a couple of occasions in a couple of different situations, and I've been told, well, that wasn't ace phobic because you weren't even out as ace and you were probably too young to know that you were ace. But I was 14 years old and I was telling my therapist 
that there was a boy who was pursuing me sexually and making me very uncomfortable and I didn't want anything to do with it. And she was like, oh, well, why don't you explore that relationship with him? Why don't you know? Why don't you give it a go? Like you've and she chalked it up to like normal teenage behavior. She's like, Courtney, you've had to grow up so fast. You've you've had to be the adult. You've had to take care of other people in your life. And it's it's just time for you to be a normal teenager. So why don't you explore this relationship with this boy? And I was like, uh, that, that was very harmful advice. I got put in a very dangerous situation as a direct result of that advice from a therapist at age 14. And people will, you know, have the audacity to tell me like, well, you, you didn't even tell her you were asexual. You didn't even, you know, tell anybody the word asexual at the time. It's like, I don't care. I think it comes from the same bias. <laughs> regardless of whether or not the word asexuality is used. Yeah, that's completely, just totally inappropriate advice. I just, and we've got, I've got so many stories in the, in the sexual violence as well of, of kids who are, you know, 14, 15, a lot of them, a lot of them girls, but not all. And, you know, they're telling stories of being actively stalked by boys and, um, no, yeah, no, no help. You know, there's one of a, a, sec, a sexual assault that happened directly in front of a teacher who didn't say a word. I'm just, what? You know, that, that's just doubly traumatic, you know, to, to have this occur in front of a teacher and receive no help of any kind. How, how is a person, how is a person supposed to, I guess, have any trust in authority that, you know, that anybody is going to help you? Anybody is going to take you seriously? Yeah, it's just. Yeah, I just don't have words for a lot of the man. I was a bitch on the days I was reading the sexual violence stories. I was so unpleasant <laughs> to deal with. I don't think anyone could blame you for that. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, I was reading, you know, I, I read them all day so that I would have less days of reading them rather than like reading a few a day and having to deal with it for a longer period of time. Sure. Just just binge that statistical trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot. We got I think we we got about sixteen hundred qualitative responses, so like sixteen hundred stories, most of which were negative, and I've read them all twice. So yeah, it's it's a lot, and uh, I'm not. I mean, you you would think that that would be kind of re-traumatizing for me, um, but it's really not. And I'm kind of a I'm a little bit desensitized now. Like I don't. I don't really know how to judge the level of upsetting the stories are. And I will repeat one and be like, oh, I'm sorry, that was way worse than I had. I thought that it was. I mean, I'm I'm honestly quite the same. I I have also not only experienced a variety of traumas, but I have many close friends who have shared, you know, in detail their traumas. And so I, I also feel like there's a level of desensitization, but more so to your point about the fact that this wasn't re-traumatizing for you, I almost find it to be a bit healing in nature when I read, hey, I'm not alone. There are other people who have similar experiences and that you can see in the data that it's it's not an insignificant number either because before being able to find the ACE community and read studies like this, I would be like, what the heck? What is wrong with me? Why have I experienced so many traumas? 
this is ridiculous. I feel like if I laid out on paper all the traumas I've given and just handed it to someone, they'd be like, you can't possibly have gone through all of this. I find it like energizing. It makes me want to do things. Makes me want to, you know, it makes me want to work (laughs) to do something about this problem. But yeah, it can be a lot the days where I have to do the do the qualitative stuff. Sure. And and what sort of thoughts do you have about what we as a community can do with this research and what sort of work we can do going forward to build off of it? Because clearly there are safety issues. Clearly there are abuses. Clearly there are patterns here. What is it that we can take away from all this data to sort of help protect ourselves and our communities and get the education out? Yeah, well, I'm really, really focused on on awareness and education, but I don't mean awareness in a kind of vague, like awareness bubbly sense. I mean, actually aware, like making people aware that this is a, this is the situation and it is, it is a crisis situation. Like we have asexual people experiencing different forms of violence at just alarmingly high rates. You know, there's that 39% for uh, intimate partner violence. Uh, We've got 16.86% experiencing sexual violence that occurred because they are asexual, even after we remove everything else. I mean, that's just, that's just too high. 11.82% of asexual people have been sexually assaulted because they are asexual. I mean, that, that's just, that's just ridiculous number. That's so unacceptable. And I think that there's just a genuine ignorance. People just do not know that. And I think if one of the important things is for me to just tell as many people that as possible, because, you know, when I do, the room goes silent and people say, oh my God, you know, they just, I had no idea. Yeah. They just didn't know that they just, and then I think a lot of people, you know, when I tell them that my work is that I research hate crime against asexual people, they say, is that even a thing? (laughs) Yep. Because they just can't imagine why anyone would have a problem, but they do have a problem. And uh, I think, yeah, just making people aware that of that, this is a problem. And also I would very much like some money. I think that um, people need to start actually putting some money behind the problem so that we can get out there and do some education and with proper funding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's no way sexual education or, you know, awareness or support organization even that actually has ever had any funding anywhere in the world. And that's, well, that's really problematic. And, you know, another thing that you can do as like in your local area is just getting involved with and getting in touch with all the local queer groups, the LGBTQIA plus groups, and just saying to them, do you cater to asexuals? Do you, do you, are your programs available to asexuals? If they're not, do you know why asexuals might need your services? And providing them with that information so that, you know, they can get involved and they, and they may have, it's probably just an oversight on their part. I know that the internet can make it seem like asexual people just aren't welcome and, you know, the community doesn't want us there, but I have never in real life gone into a real life queer community among queer people and been made to feel unwelcome. I could say the same for myself, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I've just done, you know, massive conferences, you know, at the human rights conference, totally welcome, completely, completely welcomed there. I was just at the big community fair day 
this weekend, uh, which my, which is held in my city every year. And like, I know literally every person that comes past, you know, it's, it's not that big a town. And, um, you know, there's people constantly like, Hey, Hey, you know, um, I just know everyone there. I'm always welcome. We as an organization are welcome there. You know, we were too small to be able to afford to pay for, to have a stall and just, the people that run it were like, well, you're so important. You need to be there. We, you Don't pay. You're fine. We'll pay for you. We're just so welcome in real life all the time. And I think if any organization that's in your area isn't catering to asexual people, isn't offering their services, it's ignorance. It's probably not deliberate, you know, deliberate discrimination. They probably just don't know that we need those services or they're not sure how to offer them and they may not know that there is anyone who can advise them on it. Many times I've been to conferences or or something and someone has approached me and said, oh my God, thank you so much for being here because I have a lot of questions. You know, we didn't want to offer our, you know, domestic violence services to asexual people because we didn't want to get it wrong. Mm. You know, we, we aren't sure how to do it. And we, we wanted to consult with someone and we just didn't know, like we couldn't find anyone. So like, you know, can I have your card? Can we email? Can you help us do it properly? So yeah, get yourself known out there and connect with the local services and just give them this information. Tell them to read my report. We know whatever. I'm working on a pamphlet at the moment that we can give out that's just like, are your services catering to asexual people? If not, why not? Here's the information you need, you know, so that I can just hand it around to people and say to them, you know, have you considered? Uh, Yeah, just that kind of thing, getting out there and just making people aware of what we need and why we need it. Yeah, I think that's so important because that's been uh, more or less my experience with actual in-person organizations as well, is that they may be ignorant, but they don't tend to be hateful. Any and all issues I've had in real person, you know, LGBT plus situations have just been like the one-off jerk here and there, but the overall place, the venue, the organization has been quite welcoming. So, and that is easy to lose sight of when the internet does seem to be just a sea of ace phobia, but yeah, yeah. I even saw on on your report that you did get some troll responses and I actually I kind of liked that you included some of them in your report. <laughs> you know, the great I mean the great thing about researching acephobia or hate crime is that every rape threat that I get sent is just data to me. Um so that's one way to look at it. <laughs> I'm able to include it in my report. So yeah, that that was fabulous. Um, and yeah, the two people that sent in troll responses, I find fascinating as well because I was like, they were such obvious trolls. It's like at least at least screw my data up and make my make it seem like you're a real response because they were so obvious. I was able to just completely remove them from the data set very easily. Yeah, I I was quite baffled because I would think that a troll going through such a large survey as this that will take a little time to get through that they they did make it so obvious. I mean, let's see, what was I reading? Oh, people were like, oh, I hope you suffer from microaggressions. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you whiny milk toast babies. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, that's quite something. At least they put a normal name, so it took me a little bit to find a response, whereas the other one referred to themselves as as Lord something or other, and that that was so easy to find and be like, "Mm, that's not real. Are you sure they weren't a real member of the aristocracy? (laughs) 
Probably not. No, not with that troll name, no. Although they were extremely anti-Semitic, so maybe they were. Ah, uh, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were ra- they were extremely racist and anti-Semitic, so they, they could have been a real member of the Aristotle. So we, we can't rule it out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Which I, I guess to branch off of the um, troll response, because someone's saying that they hope, they hope you suffer from microaggressions. You you did have an entire section on microaggressions. And when, when I first read the title of your report, I did not even have to start reading the report to know where this came from. That quote that's, I don't know if this counts, but dot, 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 because just being ace and knowing aces and interacting with the community, I knew exactly where that feeling came from. Every ace person that sees the title is just like, why are you calling me out personally? Like they just, <laughs> all of them. I'm, like, I'm so glad that I called it that because it just speaks to ace people. It really does. It's spot on. And I have, I've called this phenomenon asexual self-minimization. Because it is it is so common where an asexual person starts this response with something like, I don't know if this counts, but, or I know other people have it worse, or, you know, words to that effect. And then they just describe a straight up hate crime, like something that is just objectively horrendous. And you just go, of course that counts. Like that is 100%. Like, yeah, this is this feeling like nothing that can happen to an asexual person really count. And it just feels like they, I want to say we, but I refuse to participate in it. So we, but we do it to ourselves constantly. And it's just so concerning that so many of the respondents seem to feel like their experience doesn't count and shouldn't count when it absolutely does. And it's just so common that I felt like this thing needs a name. Yeah, I I would 100% agree with that because, like I said, I, I knew where that came from before I even got into the numbers. But that that's another reason why we need we need studies like this. We need surveys. We need the data because we also need other aces to be able to see you do count. You aren't just, you know, a one-off exception. This is this is a pattern. This is real. And it's interesting that you got people saying that as a preface to like certifiable hate crimes, because I know definitely people do that at the drop of a hat when it does come to microaggression, because they're like, oh, I don't really know if this is a microaggression. sort of him and haw around that. We initially listed 29 that we could think of. And then there was a further 26 write-ins that, whoa. I mean, there were a lot of things got written in more than once, but like that were distinct from each other. There are 26 more. But the other interesting thing about write-ins that I, I really found important, and I think it gets back to that, I don't know if this counts, but was um, with microaggressions, we didn't just ask if people had experienced them. We asked who the person saying this was. And we had about, I want to say like eight categories. Uh, you know, parents, sibling, other family member, friend, co-worker, authority figure. Yeah, there's about eight to 10 there. And we had two or three people write and say that they thought we should have included self as one of them. Um, because a lot of the time when they had experienced these things, it had been themselves saying it. And I was just, just reading this. I was like, wow, that is, that is such a good point. Yeah. We do get all of these, all of these from ourselves. 
Yeah, and and I find it so interesting. And for any listeners out there, I I do hope you open the report and go through some of this because some of these charts are just so fascinating to just visually see. But when the microaggressions experienced at least once by respondents, the largest one at the bottom, I, I think most of us have heard this at one point. And that's why I was like, yeah, well, I guess that number checks out was, uh, you just haven't met the right person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love this one because people can, like, you can spend, you know, 10 minutes explaining what asexuality and aromanticism is, you know, and saying, I don't want a partner and I'm not interested in entering into a relationship. And the response is, you just haven't met the right person yet. Like, I literally just told you I am not looking for the right person. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, 80 point. 56% have, have reported hearing that and not too far behind still in the 72 to 78% are the things like sex is part of human nature. This is what makes us human. And it's like, that's, that's something that we hear so often throughout our lives, whether or not it's specifically directed at us, even if it's just around that we do sort of just absorb these things and it can it can really weigh on the psyche. My favorite is sex is what makes us human because like, have you heard of animals? Lots of animals do that, actually. Lots of animals who are not humans even. <laughs> have you heard of orchids? Orchids, they do it. I think it's orchids. Yeah. There are plants that have sex. Like, it's pretty sure it, it doesn't make us human. Yeah. Yeah. That one just, I love. I'm just looking to see if the, um, yeah, what some of the writing ones were, because a few of them did make me laugh. I was like, oh my God, yes. How did I, how did we not think of that when we were writing the question? <laughs> how did I so, miss it? Yeah, because there were just so many. That's how I missed it. Oh yeah. Why do you need so many labels? Yeah, I'm so <laughs> familiar with that. It's not necessary to come out as asexual. I, I, yeah, that's really, really common. Love that one. Oh yeah. I hear that one plenty. Asexuals will end the human race. Love that one. <laughs> Oh, stealing all the resources. Yes. This misconception that asexual people are taking resources away from the real LGBTQI plus community. What resources are those? Pray tell. <laughs> I would love those resources. I would love to steal the resources. Please give me the resources. I mean, I spent two years writing this in my spare time. No, Nobody gave me any money. Yeah, no, we have no funding in our nonprofit. Like, yeah, just... I would love some of them resources. Because, yeah, this, this is extensive. I mean, this had to have, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine how many hours worth of work this was to complete. I took three months off to not do it, um, in which I wrote a trashy uh, medieval romance novel. Um, Did you? Well, now let's hear more about that. <laughs> like, I'm going to spend the summer writing a trashy medieval romance novel instead of working on this. That was a great summer. That actually sounds really fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't care if it's not good. I'm just going to write it. It's going to be fun. Yeah. But the one other thing I would like to talk about is kind of what I say on the in the final remarks at the back, which is what I think is really important, is that the survey, unfortunately, does miss a lot of things that it, it could have covered and some that it couldn't. It is missing that intersectional aspect. I mean, it was only published in English. And, you know, I know from from our friends in, in Southeast Asia that a lot of this violence and a lot of this oppression is occurring there far more than it occurs here. So if anything, this is underestimating. You know, I have, I have a friend that works in Bangladesh. So, you know, she's down there on the ground 
while I'm just reporting on how common it is in primarily Western countries. And, you know, we haven't looked at how being both disabled and asexual, you know, that how that affects a person's experience, you know, whether being neurodivergent or having a mental illness, we didn't ask any of these questions. And these are things that are going to increase the likelihood of a person's experience of violence. And, you know, if you have a mental illness or you are neurodivergent, statistically, we know that you are more at risk of intimate partner violence or sexual assault. But the most important thing is that I, I was not able to and did not ask about a person's race or ethnicity. And that's a big problem because of the racism problem, both within and outside of the asexual community. You know, asexuality being seen by people as, oh, it's just a, a thing that white women say to, you know, get more attention. <laughs> and I, I don't know how to factor race into a global study because... I mean, if, if I say, you know, what is your ethnicity or, or, or what is your race? Like the same person in South Africa and the US and the UK and Japan, if they give the same answer. Right. Yeah. And factoring in diaspora and. Yeah. Yeah. This are you in the minority where you're currently living? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just not going to make sense. Mm hmm. But we absolutely need to know how this, how race affects the experience. So, I mean, Yasmin Benoit is doing a similar work to this in the UK at the moment with Stonewall. And so she's doing it within one country. And I think, I don't know exactly what she's doing, but I think that there are like close interviews. So I'm really hoping that her study kind of will be able to, to look at that because it's within one country. Right. And, and that will hopefully cover, yeah, be able to cover that, that angle because I think it is so important because, you know, even it's important because outside of the ACE community, there is a, I don't want to say there's a misperception of that, you know, ACE, asexuality is just a white person thing because I, I think misperception implies that it's a, you know, it's a, not a malicious um, thing at all. And being racist is definitely doesn't deserve that. But yeah, there's certainly a, an attitude that, you know, asexuality is, is for white people. And there are those within the asexual community who perpetuate that. So I really think that we should be talking about it and we should be looking at it. And I'm really regretful that I, I haven't been able to to study it. Yeah. Well, I certainly do hope that there are more studies to come. And also to your point that there are uh, hopefully well-funded studies to come. That would maybe that's too much to hope for. But boy, that'd be great, huh? Yeah, yeah. Like, hopefully it's interesting enough that academic institutions can say, okay, great. So we know that there is something here, even if we can't cite this, but maybe we can say, okay, she's found something here. Let's look at it and see what we can get that. That would be great. Right. Like, I don't care if you don't even acknowledge my, that I did it. Just like do something with this information. That is the thing that I feel like has been most lacking in the the broader ace community is the real sort of i guess follow up and activism and advocacy in an attempt to actually make real change because we we have a lot of ace 101 and we have a constant sort of rotating door of new people coming in doing ace 101 and that is still very much needed i don't think the ace 101 should ever go away because there are still people just now discovering it but as far as 
organizations, as far as funding, as far as legislation and like true boots on the ground activism, trying to make change and trying to educate people about the numbers, not just here's what asexuality is, but here's what asexual people need. Here's what our community is going through and here's how you can help us. I, I found su such a lack of that in in so many spaces, and surely there definitely are some. It same, seems like you are all doing great work in Australia with, with your survey here. I know there's a lot of great activism happening in some of the Asian countries. You mentioned Yasmin with the the study in the UK, but it just doesn't seem like enough comparatively because you you called this a I believe you used the word crisis earlier with how high these numbers are. And I don't feel like we have the, um, we don't have the fire under us that I think we need based on these findings and based on what our community is actually going through. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how I feel as well. We need to start doing something. And uh, however we start doing something, like I don't care, I don't care what you're doing. <laughs> Just like take this information and, and do something with it. On that note, we, we covered a lot of ground, but this, this is such a large report that I no doubt there were entire sections we've glossed over. So I want to make sure that we don't miss anything that you're particularly keen to talk about. So were there any other um any other things you wanted to mention either about your own experience, about the study, about other activism happening in different places of the world? I cannot think of anything off the top of my head. <laughs> and I have been talking for two hours straight, so I'm a little bit bleh. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is I think it is important um as well. I did mention like the the intersectionality with just with disability before, and I think there's there's one great quote in the report where the person says that in healthcare it's it's really difficult because their problem is they're too easily believed because they're in a wheelchair and they feel like doctors are just assuming already that they're asexual. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have the opposite problem. And I just thought it was really important that I include that particular quote when I was, you know, looking through all of the stories because, yeah, that's another thing that I think really needs to be kept in mind as well is that there is this kind of assumption of asexuality that disabled people experience. And being disabled myself and a, an occasional wheelchair user, it's, it really puts you in this place where you're like, well, I, I don't want to perpetuate a stereotype. But at the same time, this this is my experience. Like, I am disabled and also asexual and, and autistic as well. Like, I don't want to not be me, but also I don't, like, how do I not perpetuate a stereotype while at the same time, like, just being authentic to my own experience? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really difficult when, you know, people aren't, people struggle to accept, you know, asexual people experience oppression. Like they're not ready for a nuanced experience. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the truth. Well, you know, it's very complicated because yeah, no one wants to like be the stereotype, but there are so many things that just do actually need the spotlight because th these are real people. These aren't tropes. These aren't, you know, their existence isn't harmful. And I, I think the um, autism one is especially really interesting because what I've found over the years is that 
people who are incredibly acephobic are also incredibly ableist and they'll use autistic as an insult. They'll be like, you're not asexual, you're just autistic. And they'll mean that derogatorily. And it's like, all right, well, I may say I'm autistic, now what? <laughs> well, yeah, I spent, I spent two years of my life writing this report. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm autistic. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> what, what did you think? And there definitely is an issue with, you know, disabled people often being desexualized, which a lot of people are are heavily concerned about. But I have a very unusual case where a component of my disability is hyperflexibility. And so my disability has actually been like hypersexualized and fetishized at various points. So when other disabled aces are saying like, oh, well, we're already desexualized, I'm like, well, not I. <laughs> So there, there are so, so many multitudes within the disabled ace experience. And, and I've had that same experience as well, as well of the stereotypes. Um, early on, you know, because I've, I've been in this space for four or five years. When I first started talking about my experience surviving corrective sexual assault, there was, there was a kind of hostility. It was like, shut up. You know, we, we don't want that all asexual people have survived sexual trauma kind of push. Like we don't want to perpetuate that, stop doing it, you know, and, and I, I would get sent abuse. Uh, but like that's really kind of stopped now, I think, which I think is great. I think people are really way more open to this conversation than, than they were, you know, even just that short time ago. So I, I think that's really good that people are kind of yeah, people are kind of ready within our community to just to start having this conversation about surviving sexual abuse, sexual assault. And, you know, bef yeah, before I can remember, they certainly were not, you know, because I was I was even saying, you know, this happened to me because I was asexual, not I'm asexual because this happened, but people couldn't even cope with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I mean, I haven't received like a shut up. <laughs> a, sh a shut up message in like well over a year so we love progress <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think it's great that you know this conversation is, is a little bit more open now and i i have to thank all my fellow activists in australia who have always been like no like 100 percent, we're going to talk about this if you want to talk about it we want to talk about it and i know a lot of the discussion about trauma has come out of australia because you know the, the everyone has been so supportive here and it's just been like no but we're talking about this this is unacceptable you know when i when i've showed them like people have said to me don't talk about it they've been like we, we will increase the thing we will talk about it more so yeah and i think it's great that you know we have started to be capable of having nuance and i hope that we can you know we can carry that on into other areas where perhaps we need to be having more nuanced discussion. Oh, yeah. I've found with trauma and with disability, with all these other intersections that I think especially over the last like year, last year and a half, two years, maybe, I've seen a lot of progress being made in just the general, I guess, discourse of the community. So I'm, I'm feeling more optimistic than I felt a couple years ago about the the state of difficult conversations like those, but there's there's always progress to be made. There's more improvements that must be done. So hopefully, hopefully we can work towards that, and hopefully we can use surveys like this to really, you know, light that fire and give us another push to, like you said, do something with it. Yeah. So, Kate, this was wonderful. Please tell the people where all they can find you. Uh, they can find me on Twitter. I am at sulfuric underscore acid 
A-S-E-I-D. Love the pun. Yes. <laughs> I'm ace. I've got to have a pun. And also, I'm just very, very angry and corrosive all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Love the pun and the honesty. They can also find me through the Ace and Aero Collective, which is aceaerocollective.au. I think it'll come up if you Google it, but it, it may still be in the process. We'll pop it in the show notes for everyone listening along. Yeah, yeah. And you can email me via Ace Aero Collective. Yeah, we're a new we're a new organization in Australia where like all of the different states have all these different little organizations and we were just like, well, why are we all, you know, writing our own little educational material and also, you know, to get anything done, you need to have an ABN and you need you need to have a, a business number and a tax number and a bank account and you need to like officially register and it's $800 just to do that. And we were like, why would we all do that separately? Let's just register one organization and then we can all just be like little partners of the organization. So yeah, like just kind of collectively pooling our resources. All the, all those many, many resources that we're stealing from everybody else. Mm, all those, all those stolen <laughs> resources. We can, we can pool those. So yeah, I'm the research director for them. And I also just do stuff in my own little town where we, we have, we have a lot of fun and get invited to all the cool queer parties. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again for being here. I'm so excited about your study. I'm so excited for our listeners to be able to dig into it. And I'm just excited for the future. I'm coming away from this conversation feeling optimistic. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for being here. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who are still sticking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about hate crime. <laughs> well, there's there's no no shortage of hate crime to talk about. What's what should be our um what should be our big takeaway for the episode? Oh, I feel like it should be a play on the title. I don't know if this counts. Hmm. Maybe maybe the takeaway is uh yes, it counts. <laughs> it does count. Absolutely counts. So much so often I'm reading them and I'm just like, oh honey, yes, it counts. And I really hate that it's anonymous because I'm like, I just want to hug you. Oh, I want to oh reach God. out and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had to have a little like messenger like support group for when I needed it. Just like, yeah, if you need anything, we'll just be here and just message us and tell us that you're not okay and it's it's fine. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to cover by yourself. It sure is. So on that note, our lovely listeners, we will see you all again next week. In the meantime, definitely do check out Kate's work. Check out the Ace and Arrow Collective. AU, did I get that right? That's us, yep. And remember, it does count. <laughs> Your experience counts. Also self-care. Also self-care. That's 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 a good one. Yeah. Practice good self-care because your experience does count and and you need looking after. <laughs>